Hello and welcome to our podcast, the next in our series on sanctions and related market conduct and financial crime issues. My name is Catherine Pluck and I'm a senior knowledge lawyer here at Norton Rose Fulbright. As you'll be aware, recent events are having a significant impact on financial markets and the FCA will be keeping a close eye on market conduct during this period. In light of this, today I'm joined by Katie Stephen and Joe Smallshaw, who are members of our financial services group in London, to talk about some of the lessons learned from the published enforcement cases in terms of red flags for potential market manipulation, as well as some practical steps that firms can be taking now to help detect and prevent market manipulation happening in the first place. But before we do this, Katie, to start with, perhaps you can give us some thoughts on the different types of market manipulation and deceptive trading practices. Yes, of course. Thanks, Kat. So manipulative practices vary across different markets and instruments, and so it's difficult to prescribe what makes a particular practice manipulative or deceptive. Indeed, sometimes trades are executed for legitimate purposes, but may appear abusive, especially where the market is illiquid or volatile. However, to give some examples of manipulative behaviour, firstly, layering or spoofing. This is generally used to describe a practice of entering into multiple orders on one side of the order book with the intention of moving the market price. For example, entering into buy orders to increase the price of an instrument and then submitting an order on the other side of the order book, reflecting the true intention to trade. Taking advantage of movement in the market price to sell the instrument at an inflated price. The trader then rapidly removes the multiple initial buy orders following the successful execution of the sell order. The FCA may consider that such behaviour gave a false and misleading impression about the supply and demand for securities. In September last year, the FCA published a warning notice statement against three bank traders in this area, proposing to take action in respect of their conduct in summer 2019. The second example of manipulative behaviour is wash trading. This is used to describe trading where there's no change in ownership or risk, but which can create a false or misleading impression to the other market participants as to the price or demand for a security. For example, a market participant might sell a quantity of a particular instrument to themselves, either directly or through a third party, to give the impression that there's higher demand for that instrument. There was a wash trading case last year in which the relevant individual was fined over £50,000 and prohibited by the FCA. Joe, what other types of manipulative behaviour are out there? Thanks, Katie. A third example is squeezes or corners. This is used to describe the practice of acquiring a dominant position in an individual asset class so as to force those seeking to buy that asset to buy at inflated prices. A final example is share ramping, which is also known as pump and dump. This is used to describe the dissemination of misleading positive information with a view to increasing the price of shares, allowing the market participants to sell the instruments at a profit. As you probably get the sense from the different types of market manipulation that Katie and I have mentioned as examples, market manipulation cases are complex and more difficult to investigate than insider dealing or other types of market abuse. This is often because they are orchestrated by a group of individuals in a sophisticated way carrying out what may seem like standard transactions. However, previous enforcement action has highlighted potential indicators of market manipulation. UK MAS sets out in Annex 1 indicators of manipulative behaviour. These indicators do not in themselves constitute market manipulation, but may be taken into account when transactions or orders to trade are investigated by the FCA. Katie, can you talk us through some of these red flags? 
Yes, of course. Thanks, Joe. So examples of potential indicators of market manipulation include unusual size of orders, orders placed on the order book for an unusually short period of time, orders representing a very high proportion of the orders placed in the market in relation to the shares in question, and orders undertaken at or around a specific time when reference prices, settlement prices or valuations are calculated, and which can lead to price changes which may have an effect on such prices or valuations. Other potential red flags more generally include using codes and communications, using personal communication channels for business matters, and the deletion of specific messages or emails. It's worth noting that sanctions apply regardless of whether the trading practice was carried out manually or through automated means. Although the FCA recognises the benefits of automated processes, for example, that algorithmic trading may be beneficial for market integrity by providing an important source of liquidity, it's clear that abusive strategies, whether via automated trading or otherwise, will not be tolerated. Yes, that's right. And in fact, the FCA has flagged particular types of market manipulation, which can be associated with algorithmic trading. For example, quote stuffing, which describes the practice of rapidly submitting and cancelling large orders to flood the market with quotes requiring processing by competitors, therefore ensuring that the, comp uh, that the competition loses its high-frequency trading edge. Katie, particularly given the current market environment, what practical steps can firms be taking now to help prevent market manipulation happening in the first place? Well, I think the first point to make here is that firm surveillance arrangements and procedures in relation to market manipulation must be appropriate and proportionate to the scale and nature of each firm's own business activity. Firms risk failing to comply with their regulatory obligations if they assume that a certain calibration is appropriate on the basis that it's used by their peers. Firms need to undertake a proper assessment of their own business, the risks that could arise as a result, and the systems and controls which are suitable to mitigate those risks. The second point is that when considering potentially abusive behaviours and the precautions that should be put in place, Firms should use internal knowledge from a variety of sources, including their front office functions who are closest to the risks. Firms must have adequate systems in place so they're able to comply with their regulatory obligations at all times, including if there are changes to a firm's business model. And market participants should also refine controls continuously as external factors may require systems and controls enhancements. Joe, what robust measures of controls might that, might that include for firms? Well, some of the robust measures and procedures um, may, for example, include regular updates to policies to ensure that guidance is clear, including in relation to the escalation of any suspicious activity. Another procedure might include a systematic approach to risk assessments, which are properly documented and repeated annually or when another trigger occurs. Pre-trade controls to prevent the entry of orders that exceed credit limits or appropriate price or size parameters are also useful. And finally, alerts generated through surveillance arrangements being evaluated by appropriate independent individuals in a timely manner and in conjunction with other relevant contextual data. Yes, agreed. Firms should also have an appropriate written methodology for investigating alerts, as well as appropriate levels of sign-off for the closure of alerts and proportionate sample testing of alerts and escalations. Other controls might include bespoke market conduct training provided on a risk-based approach with real-life examples and the adoption of appropriate incentives and evaluation of employees' commitment to compliance in promotion and compensation decisions. 
We'll be closely following market developments on this and the impact that it may have on firms. And so do keep an eye out for future podcasts and on our Regulation Tomorrow blog for updates. In the meantime, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.